Not all decisions are equal. Uh, some decisions that you make are fairly minor, and as time goes on, not a lot hangs off them. Uh, my choice of what socks to wear this morning uh, is probably going to turn out to be one of those sorts of decisions. Admittedly, if I've worn odd socks, perhaps um, a pair of Sue socks, I can imagine there'll be some repercussions when I get home. But generally speaking, what socks I wear on a Sunday morning, not much is going to come off that. Other decisions, however, can be very different. Other decisions we make can have a very big impact. Walt Disney's decision to listen to his wife Lillian's advice and to rename his cartoon mouse Mickey instead of Mortimer turned out to be one of those decisions. Can't imagine Mortimer the mouse becoming the household name that Mickey Mouse became. Some decisions just have a very big flow-on effect. Friends, this morning in today's section of Isaiah, we've reached one of those big types of decisions. In chapter 37, King Hezekiah of Judah makes a decision that turns out to be huge. And Isaiah wants us to see that by structuring everything in the chapter around this decision. The first bit of the chapter all builds up in anticipation to this decision. The decision itself occupies centre stage within the chapter. And then afterwards, everything else that follows on in the chapter flows out as a direct consequence from this decision. And coming as it does as virtually the central structural pivot of the book, Isaiah wants us to see that something truly big is happening in today's chapter. This is a decision that King Hezekiah makes that is huge. So huge that it actually even has relevance for you and I, sitting on the other side of the world hundreds of years later. What exactly is this decision? Why is it a big deal? Let's see if we can't work it out by thinking through the build-up, the decision itself, and then the consequences, which, as I mentioned, is pretty much the flow of the chapter. Firstly, it's the build-up to the decision that gets our attention. Verse 1. When King Hezekiah heard this, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and went into the temple of the Lord. Today's chapter is following on very closely from what we heard last week. And so this opening phrase, when King Hezekiah heard about this, the this is a reference to the situation that we encountered last Sunday in the previous chapter. The Assyrian army has surged down from the north, crushing everyone before them. And they have now arrived at Jerusalem's front doorstep. Every other fortified city in Judah has been obliterated. Only Jerusalem is left. It is a desperate situation. Although it should not have been a surprising situation. Because ever since chapter 1 of Isaiah, God's been telling Judah that this moment was coming. And he's been telling them why it's coming. It's coming as judgment for their failure to trust him or obey him. And he's been telling them that when it does come, how they are to respond. He's been telling them that if they turn to him for help, he will protect them, he will deliver them, he will shield Jerusalem. If they look to God for help, when Assyria comes, he will miraculously save them. And for about 35 chapters now, God, through his messenger Isaiah, has been telling them that. But last week, the king of Assyria, through his messenger, said something very different. He said, 
surrender. And he said it really persuasively. The field commander of the Assyrian army stood out in front of his massive undefeated army and he called out to Jerusalem to just face facts and give up. It'll avoid so much needless pain. Have you seen the size of the army? Have you not heard what we have done to every other person who has not surrendered? Just just come on out with your hands up and everyone will be better off. When King Hezekiah heard this, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and went into the temple of the Lord. The torn clothes and the sackcloth are a sign of grief, of desperation. He is not into pretending that things aren't as serious as they are. He's got a big decision to make. Is he going to trust in God's promise of a miraculous rescue or should he just surrender? Which on the face of it has a lot going for it. Well, it's a good sign that in his distress, Hezekiah goes into the temple of the Lord. It's another good sign in verse 2 that he asks Isaiah to pray for him. It's probably not a good sign that in verse 4, he says to Isaiah, quote, it may be that the Lord your God will hear. It may be your God. It doesn't sound all that confident. It, it sounds as if Hezekiah isn't even counting Isaiah's God as his own. At this point of the text, we're feeling like this, can, this could go either way, this decision. But if Hezekiah at the moment is sounding a bit unsure, God, on the other hand, is very decisive. In contrast to the lengthy speech from the field commander that we heard last week, God's response in verses 6 and 7 is dismissively brief. Two verses. Don't worry about the king of Assyria. He's gone. He's going to hear a report. He's going to go back to his own country. He's going to be cut down. No problem. He's out of here. In fact, as soon as God says this, things start immediately to look up. In verse 9, the king of Assyria hears a report about Egypt causing a bit of trouble somewhere else. He withdraws from Jerusalem to go off and deal with Egypt. Excellent. However, before he goes... King Sennacherib of Assyria sends off a parting shot. In verse 10, he sends another final message to Hezekiah telling him not to get his hopes up. Do not let the God you depend on deceive you, verse 10, when he says Jerusalem will not be handed over to the king of Assyria. Surely you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the countries, destroying them completely. And will you be delivered? Did the gods of the nations that were destroyed to, by my forefathers deliver them? This delay to have to go off and beat up Egypt, which, by the way, they did very comprehensively, it only sounds like it's made Sennacherib even more determined. I'll be back, he's saying. And when I do, there'll be real trouble. He's not talking about simply defeating Jerusalem. He's talking about completely destroying Jerusalem. He intends to tear Hezekiah and his beloved city limb from limb. So it really is crunch time now. What is Hezekiah going to decide? Is he going to trust God and that promise of a miraculous salvation, a salvation that almost sounds too good to be true? And you know what they say about things sounding too good to be true. Or should he just surrender? Because Sennacherib sounds really angry now. And it's hard to argue against the guy. None of the other gods of the other nations have been able to stop him. What to choose? 
Well, we get our first clear sign of the decision in verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the messages and read it. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. Now, I think this is a very moving scene. As Hezekiah enters the temple and physically spreads out this threatening letter from the king of Assyria, maybe on the floor of the temple. It is such a deliberate act of faith. It amounts to a complete surrender over to God's will and God's power and God's help. I've, I've known friends who have physically done this same sort of thing with medical reports. The results have come in, desperately bad news, and in utter helplessness and confusion and usually with a lot of crying, they simply spread the reports out on their bedroom floor and just pray. Utterly reliant on God. That's Hezekiah here. And so do you notice that now with Hezekiah, he's not asking Isaiah to pray for him. Hezekiah is praying. And it is a magnificent prayer. Let me read it again. Verse 16. O Lord Almighty, King of Israel, enthroned between us cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to all the words Sennacherib has sent to insult the living God. It is true, O Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste all these people in their lands. They've thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they weren't gods but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Now, O Lord our God, deliver us from his hand so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. Hezekiah has made his decision. He's going to go with God, wholeheartedly with God, because what's really telling in this prayer is that it begins and ends with an overwhelming concern Not necessarily that they be rescued, but a concern for God's honour. Its total focus is that God might be seen for who he is, the one true and living God. The other nations weren't saved by their gods because they're not God. Yahweh alone is the God of all the kingdoms of the earth. Yahweh alone is the one who made the heavens and the earth. Friends, this is a prayer in which Hezekiah lifts himself out of his own personal little world into the concerns of God. This is a prayer worth noticing in part because it's such a God-centered prayer. This is a prayer that is preoccupied with God's reputation. This is a prayer that is concerned with God's good name. This is a prayer that's primarily interested in God's standing and God's self-esteem. It's all about God. This is a prayer that encourages me and humbles me and rebukes me all at the same time. Because in my heart of hearts, I want to pray like this. But I don't know about you, but so often I don't. So often my default setting in my prayer life just drops back to me. And so I'm asking God, God, could you please do this and this and this for me? Instead of God, could you please do this? Could you please do whatever's needed? so that all kingdoms of earth may know that you are God. This is a good prayer. 
wonderfully and rightly all about God and his honour being protected. In that respect, it is a prayer worth imitating. But at another level, it is far more than that because this prayer represents a massive decision because of who it is that is making it. Because, you see, Hezekiah is not just anyone. He is the king of God's people. That's why there's been all the tension. That's why there's been all the build-up to this moment. It's because whatever the king of God's people decides, that has massive ramifications for God's people. And in particular, what we now get to see in the rest of the chapter is that when the king of God's people decides to humbly seek the honour of God before all other things, when God's, when God's king decides to want to honour God himself, that's when extraordinary things start to happen. Listen now as we keep reading into the chapter and discover the consequences that begin to flow out of this decision. By Hezekiah. Verse 21. Then Isaiah, son of Amos, sent a message to Hezekiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria. This is the word the Lord has spoken against him. The virgin daughter of Zion, which is a reference to Jerusalem, despises and mocks you. The daughter of Jerusalem tosses her head as you flee. So even though this is being spoken to Hezekiah, it's as if God is now addressing King Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, directly, telling him that Jerusalem is just going to laugh at him as he has to run away. Verse 23. Who is it you have insulted and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes in pride? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your messengers you have heaped insults on the Lord. And you have said, with my many chariots, I have ascended the heights of the mountains. The utmost heights of Lebanon, I've cut down its tallest cedars, the choicest of its pines. I've reached its remotest heights, the finest of its forests. I've dug wells in foreign lands and drunk the water there. With the soles of my feet, I have dried up all the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard? Long ago, I ordained it. In days of old, I planned it. I have brought it to pass that you have turned fortified cities into piles of stone. God's really putting Sennacherib in his place here, isn't it? You are so full of yourself thinking that you've done that. Don't you get the fact that I'm God? Verse 28. But I know where you stay and when you come and go and how you rage against me because you rage against me and because your insolence has reached my ears. I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will make you return by the way you come. God is telling the king of Assyria that he will be pathetically led home. Like an animal on a lead, like a dog with its tail between its legs, Sennacherib is history. So much so that God now turns to Hezekiah and tells him that within three years you won't even know Sennacherib had been here. Verse 30. This will be the sign for you, O Hezekiah, This year you will eat what grows by itself, in the second year what springs from that. But in the third year, sow and reap, plant vineyards and eat their fruit. See, after this this invasion has ravished the the, the land, by the third year the land will still be back to normal. It will be as if Assyria never existed. 
Verse 31, once more a remnant of the house of Judah will take root below and bear fruit above. For out of Jerusalem will come a remnant and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Friends, the consequences of King Hezekiah's decision to trust God and seek his honour, the consequences are really now starting to pick up pace and flow out to the people of God. All this talk now of a remnant taking root and bearing fruit, that is exactly the sort of stuff that God's been talking about in the earlier chapters of Isaiah, about how he's going to plant a new people. He's going to build a new people, a changed people. It's all building momentum now as we are seeing that now that God's king has finally decided to seek God's honour, now that the king has decided that the purposes and plans of God are, are really picking up speed. I mean, so many of their kings have been dragging their feet, not following God. King Ahaz, the king before, chapter 7, hopeless. He's the reason this whole mess with Assyria happens in the first place. But when a king finally comes along who does trust in God, when a king comes along who finally really does want God to be honoured, that's when the handbrake comes off on God's purposes and plans. That's when truly sensational things can start to flow through to God's people. And if you doubt that, just check out what eventually happens to Sennacherib. Verse 33. Therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city, won't even shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, he will return. He will not enter this city, declares the Lord. I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. And then the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, they were all dead. Uh, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. One day, while he was worshipping in the temple of his god, Nishrok, his sons, Adramelech and Shares, cut him down with the sword. For all his big talk, Sennacherib comes to a pretty inglorious end. But here's the thing. What is it that triggers it off? What is it that triggers such a humiliating defeat for the enemies of God's people? What is it that triggers such a sensational, miraculous rescue? What is it that triggers all this talk of a remnant of God now being able to be planted and bearing fruit? What is it that sets it all in motion? What does the whole chapter swing off? Verse 20. Now, our Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. Then Isaiah, son of Amos, sent a message to Hezekiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word the Lord has spoken against him. Not all decisions are equal. Some decisions are small and not a lot hang off them. Other decisions turn out to be very much bigger and a lot hangs off them. And when the king of God's people trusts in what God says, 
and is committed to God's honour above all else. When God's king decides that, extraordinary things start to flow through for God's people. And friends, therein lies the relevance of this chapter for you and I. Because all this talk about God's king trusting in God, hopefully even now your mind is racing ahead to another king. Because chapters like this in the Old Testament are meant to point us forward and prepare us for an even greater king to come. A king who also had to decide in very difficult circumstances whether or not to trust God. A king Alan reminded the boys and girls about. A king praying alone in the dark in Gethsemane. A king almost convulsing in fear because of what lay ahead of him. And yet praying, your will be done, not mine, Father. Your honour, not mine. And with that conviction, King Jesus went to the cross, wanting God to be honoured. And so was ignited a world-engulfing kingdom of God's people that is still now literally growing by the hundreds every minute of every day. He ignited with that decision a kingdom that is open to people of every tribe and nation, a kingdom where people are offered forgiveness and hope and purpose, a kingdom whose citizens are delivered from the power of sin and death, a kingdom of people who are lavished with every spiritual blessing, a kingdom of people who are adopted into God's own family and are even granted the gift of God's own spirit in their lives. Friends, as as big as King Hezekiah's decision here in chapter 37 is, the ramifications of King Jesus' decision to trust his father, those ramifications are still reverberating around around the world. And even you and I have been caught up in them. Extraordinary. Extraordinary things happen when God's king decides to trust God and do what is necessary to honour God. Last Sunday night, Manchester City won their first English Premier League title in 44 years. For those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, that's English soccer. And a team named Manchester City finally won a competition that they've been trying to win ever since the 1970s. Now, to be honest, I'm not much of an English soccer fan, but what got my attention was the reaction of their fans. Uh, the The team won in the final minute of injury time, and on the news they showed footage of the crowd reaction when it happened. They went absolutely crazy. Complete hysteria broke out. Screaming, cheering, jumping up and down on the one spot, grown men crying, grown grown Englishmen kissing each other, guys ripping their shirts off and running around, waving it over their head. Utter frenzy broke out. Do you think perhaps that there might have been a touch of that happening? behind the wall in Jerusalem when the people woke up to discover that they had been saved in an extraordinary way. Because yes, finally, at last, we have a king 
who wants to honor God. How do you think you and I should wake up tomorrow morning? As forgiven children of God, saved in an even more extraordinary way by an even greater king's commitment to honour God. Friends, I'm thinking that no matter what problems we wake up to tomorrow, at least a part of us should be celebrating and rejoicing in our king. I'll pray. Father, before all else, we want to thank you for our King Jesus and his willingness to submit to your purposes and plans and to seek your will, not his own. Father, thank you. Thank you that through the obedience and humility and commitment of our King Jesus to your honour, thank you that through that commitment, You have showered us with every spiritual blessing, forgiven us, reserved for us a place in the new creation, adopted us into your family. Father, in all these things, we rejoice in Jesus Christ. Thank you. Amen.